Chapter Twelve, Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twelve, Part Two. Tom entered as the words were spoken with a radiant smile upon his face. and rubbing his hands more from a sense of delight than because he was cold, for he had been running fast, sat down in his warm corner again, and was as happy as only Tom Pinch could be. There is no other simile that will express his state of mind. And so, he said, when he had gazed at his friend for some time in silent pleasure, so you really are a gentleman at last, John. Well, to be sure. Trying to be, Tom, trying to be, he rejoined good humouredly. There is no saying what I may turn out in time. I suppose you wouldn't carry your own box to the mail now, said Tom Pinch, smiling, although you lost it altogether by not taking it. Wouldn't I? retorted John. That's all you know about it, Pinch. It must be a very heavy box that I wouldn't carry to get away from Pecksniff's, Tom. There, cried Pinch, turning to Martin. I told you so. The great fault in his character is his injustice to Pecksniff. You mustn't mind a word he says on that subject. His prejudice is most extraordinary. The absence of anything like prejudice on Tom's part, you know, said John Westlock, laughing heartily, as he laid his hand on Mr. Pinch's shoulder, is perfectly wonderful. If one man ever had a profound knowledge of another and saw him in a true light and in his own proper colors, Tom has that knowledge of Mr. Pecksniff. Why, of course I have, cried Tom. That's exactly what I have so often said to you. If you knew him as well as I do, John, I'd give almost any money to bring that about. You'd admire, respect, and reverence him. You couldn't help it. Oh, how you wounded his feelings when you went away. If I had known whereabout his feelings lay, retorted young Westlock, I'd have done my best, Tom, with that end in view. You may depend upon it. But as I couldn't wound him in what he has not, and in what he knows nothing of, except in his ability to probe them to the quick in other people, I am afraid I can lay no claim to your compliment. Mr. Pinch, being unwilling to protract a discussion which might possibly corrupt Martin, forbore to say anything in reply to this speech. But John Westlock, whom nothing short of an iron gag would have silenced when Mr. Pecksniff's merits were once in question, continued notwithstanding. His feelings! Oh, he's a tender hearted man! His feelings! Oh, he's a considerate, conscientious, self examining moral vagabond! He is! His feelings! Oh, what's the matter, Tom? Mr. Pinch was by this time erect upon the hearth rug, buttoning his coat with great energy. I can't bear it, said Tom, shaking his head. No, I really cannot. You must excuse me, John. I have a great esteem and friendship for you. I love you very much, and have been perfectly charmed and overjoyed to day to find you just the same as ever, but I cannot listen to this. Why, it's my old way, Tom, and you say yourself that you are glad to find me unchanged. Not in this respect, said Tom Pinch. You must excuse me, John. I cannot, really. I will not. It's very wrong. You should be more guarded in your expressions. It was bad enough when you and I used to be alone together. But under existing circumstances, I can't endure it, really. No, I cannot, indeed. You are quite right, exclaimed the other, exchanging looks with Martin. And I am quite wrong, Tom. I don't know how the deuce we fell on this unlucky theme. I beg your pardon with all my heart. 
"'You have a free and manly temper, I know,' said Pinch, "'and therefore your being so ungenerous in this one solitary instance only grieves me the more. "'It's not my pardon you have to ask, John. You have done me nothing but kindnesses.' "'Well, Pecksniff's pardon, then,' said young Westlock. "'Anything, Tom, or anybody. Pecksniff's pardon. Will that do? Here, let us drink Pecksniff's health.' "'Thank you,' cried Tom, shaking hands with him eagerly, and filling a bumper. "'Thank you. I'll drink it with all my heart, John. Mr. Pecksniff's health and prosperity to him.' John Westlock echoed the sentiment, or nearly so, for he drank Mr. Pecksniff's health and something to him, but what was not quite audible. The general unanimity being then completely restored, they drew their chairs closer round the fire, and conversed in perfect harmony and enjoyment until bedtime. No slight circumstance, perhaps, could have better illustrated the difference of character between John Westlock and Martin Chuzzlewit than the manner in which each of the young men contemplated Tom Pinch after the little rupture just described. There was a certain amount of jocularity in the looks of both, no doubt, but there all resemblance ceased. The old pupil could not do enough to show Tom how cordially he felt towards him, and his friendly regard seemed of a graver and more thoughtful kind than before. The new one, on the other hand, had no impulse but to laugh at the recollection of Tom's extreme absurdity, and mingled with his amusement there was something slighting and contemptuous, indicative, as it appeared, of his opinion that Mr. Pinch was much too far gone in simplicity to be admitted as the friend, on serious and equal terms, of any rational man. John Westlock, who did nothing by halves, if he could help it, had provided beds for his two guests in the hotel, and after a very happy evening they retired. Mr. Pinch was sitting on the side of his bed with his cravat and shoes off, ruminating on the manifold good qualities of his old friend, when he was interrupted by a knock at his chamber door, and the voice of John himself. "'You're not asleep yet, are you, Tom?' "'Bless you, no, not I. I was thinking of you.' replied Tom, opening the door. "'Come in.' "'I am not going to detain you,' said John, "'but I have forgotten all the evening a little commission I took upon myself, "'and I'm afraid I may forget it again if I fail to discharge it at once. "'You know Mr. Tigg, Tom, I believe?' "'Tigg,' cried Tom. "'Tigg, the gentleman who borrowed some money of me.' "'Exactly,' said John Westlock. "'He begged me to present his compliments and to return it with many thanks. "'Here it is.' I suppose it's a good one, but he is rather a doubtful kind of customer, Tom. Mr. Pinch received the little piece of gold with a face whose brightness might have shamed the metal, and said he had no fear about that. He was glad, he added, to find Mr. Tigg so prompt and honorable in his dealings. Very glad. Why, to tell you the truth, Tom, replied his friend, he is not always so. If you'll take my advice, you'll avoid him as much as you can in the event of your encountering him again, and by no means, Tom, pray bear this in mind, for I am very serious. By no means lend him money any more. Aye, aye, said Tom, with his eyes wide open. He is very far from being a reputable acquaintance, returned young Westlock, and the more you let him know you think so, the better for you, Tom. I say, John, quoth Mr. Pinch, as his countenance fell, and he shook his head in a dejected manner, I hope you are not getting into bad company. No, no. "'He replied, laughing. "'Don't be uneasy on that score.' "'Oh, but I am uneasy,' said Tom Pinch. "'I can't help it when I hear you talking in that way. 
"'If Mr. Tigg is what you describe him to be, "'you have no business to know him, John. "'You may laugh, but I don't consider it by any means a laughing matter, I assure you.' "'No, no,' returned his friend, composing his features. "'Quite right, it is not, certainly.' "'You know, John,' said Mr. Pinch, "'your very good nature and kindness of heart make you thoughtless, "'and you can't be too careful on such a point as this.' "'Upon my word, if I thought you were falling among bad companions, "'I should be quite wretched, "'for I know how difficult you would find it to shake them off. "'I would much rather have lost this money, John, "'than I would have had it back again on such terms.' "'I tell you, my dear good old fellow,' cried his friend, "'shaking him to and fro with both hands, "'and smiling at him with a cheerful open countenance "'that would have carried conviction to a mind much more suspicious than Tom's. "'I tell you, there is no danger.' "'Well,' cried Tom, "'I am glad to hear it. "'I am overjoyed to hear it. "'I am sure there is not, when you say so in that manner. "'You won't take it ill, John, that I said what I did just now?' "'Ill,' said the other, giving his hand a hearty squeeze. "'Why, what do you think I am made of? "'Mr. Tigg and I are not on such an intimate footing "'that you need be at all uneasy. "'I give you my solemn assurance of that, Tom. "'You are quite comfortable now?' "'Quite,' said Tom. "'Then once more, good-night.' "'Good night,' cried Tom, "'and such pleasant dreams to you "'as should attend the sleep of the best fellow in the world.' "'Except Pecksniff,' said his friend, "'stopping at the door for a moment and looking gaily back. "'Except Pecksniff,' answered Tom, with great gravity, "'of course.' "'And thus they parted for the night. "'John Westlock, full of light-heartedness and good humour, "'and poor Tom Pinch, quite satisfied, "'though still, as he turned over on his side in bed, "'he muttered to himself, I really do wish for all that, though, that he wasn't acquainted with Mr. Tigg. They breakfasted together very early next morning, for the two young men desired to get back again in good season, and John Westlock was to return to London by the coach that day. As he had some hours to spare, he bore them company for three or four miles on their walk, and only parted from them at last in sheer necessity. The parting was an unusually hearty one, not only as between him and Tom Pinch— but on the side of Martin also, who had found in the old pupil a very different sort of person from the milksop he had prepared himself to expect. Young Westlock stopped upon a rising ground when he had gone a little distance and looked back. They were walking at a brisk pace, and Tom appeared to be talking earnestly. Martin had taken off his greatcoat, the wind being now behind them, and carried it upon his arm. As he looked, he saw Tom relieve him of it, after a faint resistance, and throwing it upon his own, encumber himself with the weight of both. This trivial incident impressed the old pupil mightily, for he stood there gazing after them until they were hidden from his view, when he shook his head, as if he were troubled by some uneasy reflection, and thoughtfully retraced his steps to Salisbury. In the meantime, Martin and Tom pursued their way until they halted safe and sound at Mr. Pecksniff's house, where a brief epistle from that good gentleman to Mr. Pinch announced the family's return by that night's coach. As it would pass the corner of the lane at about six o'clock in the morning, Mr. Pecksniff requested that the gig might be in waiting at the finger-post about that time, together with a cart for the luggage. And to the end that he might be received with the greater honour, the young men agreed to rise early and be upon the spot themselves. It was the least cheerful day they had yet passed together. 
Martin was out of spirits and out of humour, and took every opportunity of comparing his condition and prospects with those of young Westlock, much to his own disadvantage, always. This mood of his depressed Tom, and neither that morning's party nor yesterday's dinner helped to mend the matter. So the hours dragged on heavily enough, and they were glad to go to bed early. They were not quite so glad to get up again at half-past four o'clock, in all the shivering discomfort of a dark winter's morning. But they turned out punctually, and were at the finger-post full half an hour before the appointed time. It was not by any means a lively morning, for the sky was black and cloudy, and it rained hard, but Martin said there was some satisfaction in seeing that brute of a horse—by this he meant Mr. Pecksniff's Arab steed—getting very wet, and that he rejoiced, on his account, that it rained so fast. From this it may be inferred that Martin's spirits had not improved, as indeed they had not, for while he and Mr. Pinch stood waiting under a hedge, looking at the rain, the gig, the cart, and its reeking driver, he did nothing but grumble, and but that it is indispensable to any dispute that there should be two parties to it, he would certainly have picked a quarrel with Tom. At length the noise of wheels was faintly audible in the distance, and presently the coach came splashing through the mud and mire with one miserable outside passenger crouching down among wet straw under a saturated umbrella, and the coachman, guard, and horses in a fellowship of dripping wretchedness. Immediately on its stopping, Mr. Pecksniff let down the window-glass and hailed Tom Pinch. "'Dear me, Mr. Pinch, is it possible that you are out upon this very inclement morning?' "'Yes, sir,' cried Tom, advancing eagerly. "'Mr. Chuzzlewit and I, sir.' "'Oh,' said Mr. Pecksniff, looking not so much at Martin as at the spot on which he stood. "'Oh, indeed. Do me the favour to see to the trunks, if you please, Mr. Pinch.' Then Mr. Pecksniff descended and helped his daughters to alight. But neither he nor the young ladies took the slightest notice of Martin, who had advanced to offer his assistance, but was repulsed by Mr. Pecksniff's standing immediately before his person, with his back towards him. In the same manner, and in profound silence, Mr. Pecksniff handed his daughters into the gig, and following himself and taking the reins, drove off home. Lost in astonishment, Martin stood staring at the coach, and when the coach had driven away at Mr. Pinch and the luggage, until the cart moved off too, when he said to Tom, "'Now will you have the goodness to tell me what this portends?' "'What?' asked Tom. "'This fellow's behaviour. Mr. Pecksniff's, I mean. You saw it.' "'No, indeed I did not,' cried Tom. "'I was busy with the trunks.' "'It is no matter,' said Martin. "'Come, let us make haste back.' and without another word started off at such a pace that Tom had some difficulty in keeping up with him. He had no care where he went, but walked through little heaps of mud and little pools of water with the utmost indifference, looking straight before him and sometimes laughing in a strange manner within himself. Tom felt that anything he could say would only render him the more obstinate, and therefore trusted to Mr. Pecksniff's manner when they reached the house, to remove the mistaken impression under which he felt convinced so great a favourite as the new pupil must unquestionably be labouring. But he was not a little amazed himself when they did reach it, and entered the parlour where Mr. Pecksniff was sitting alone before the fire, drinking some hot tea, to find that instead of taking favourable notice of his relative, and keeping him, Mr. Pinch, in the background, 
He did exactly the reverse, and was so lavish in his attentions to Tom that Tom was thoroughly confounded. "'Take some tea, Mr. Pinch, take some tea,' said Pecksniff, stirring the fire. "'You must be very cold and damp. Pray take some tea, and come into a warm place, Mr. Pinch.' Tom saw that Martin looked at Mr. Pecksniff as though he could have easily found it in his heart to give him an invitation to a very warm place, but he was quite silent, and standing opposite that gentleman at the table regarded him attentively. "'Take a chair, Pinch,' said Pecksniff. "'Take a chair, if you please. How have things gone on in our absence, Mr. Pinch?' "'You—you you will be very much pleased with the grammar school, sir,' said Tom. "'It's nearly finished.' "'If you will have the goodness, Mr. Pinch,' said Pecksniff, waving his hand and smiling, "'we will not discuss anything connected with that question at present. "'What have you been doing, Thomas, hm? "'Mr. Pinch looked from master to pupil and from pupil to master, "'and was so perplexed and dismayed that he wanted presence of mind to answer the question. "'In this awkward interval, Mr. Pecksniff, who was perfectly conscious of Martin's gaze, "'though he had never once glanced towards him, poked the fire very much, and when he couldn't do that any more, drank tea assiduously. "'Now, Mr. Pecksniff,' said Martin at last, in a very quiet voice, "'if you have sufficiently refreshed and recovered yourself, I shall be glad to hear what you mean by this treatment of me.' "'And what?' said Mr. Pecksniff, turning his eyes on Tom Pinch, even more placidly and gently than before. "'What have you been doing, Thomas, hm? When he had repeated this inquiry, he looked round the walls of the room as if he were curious to see whether any nails had been left there by accident in former times. Tom was almost at his wit's end what to say between the two, and had already made a gesture as if he would call Mr. Pecksniff's attention to the gentleman who had last addressed him, when Martin saved him further trouble by doing so himself. "'Mr. Pecksniff,' he said, softly rapping the table twice or thrice, and moving a step or two nearer, so that he could have touched him with his hand. "'You heard what I said just now. Do me the favour to reply, if you please. I ask you,' he raised his voice a little here, "'what you mean by this?' "'I will talk to you, sir,' said Mr. Pecksniff, in a severe voice, as he looked at him for the first time, "'presently.' "'You are very obliging,' returned Martin. "'Presently will not do. I must trouble you to talk to me at once.' Mr. Pecksniff made a feint of being deeply interested in his pocket-book, but it shook in his hands he trembled so. "'Now,' retorted Martin, rapping the table again, "'now. Presently will not do. Now.' "'Do you threaten me, sir?' cried Mr. Pecksniff. Martin looked at him and made no answer, but a curious observer might have detected an ominous twitching at his mouth, and perhaps an involuntary attraction of his right hand, in the direction of Mr. Pecksniff's cravat. "'I lament to be obliged to say, sir,' resumed Mr. Pecksniff, "'that it would be quite in keeping with your character if you did threaten me. You have deceived me. You have imposed upon a nature which you knew to be confiding and unsuspicious. You have obtained admission, sir,' said Mr. Pecksniff, rising, "'to this house on perverted statements and on false pretenses.' "'Go on,' said Martin, with a scornful smile. "'I understand you now. What more?' "'Thus much more, sir,' cried Mr. Pecksniff, trembling from head to foot, and trying to rub his hands as though he were only cold. "'Thus much more. 
"'If you force me to publish your shame before a third party, "'which I was unwilling and indisposed to do, "'this lowly roof, sir, must not be contaminated "'by the presence of one who has deceived and cruelly deceived "'an honourable, beloved, venerated, and venerable gentleman, "'and who wisely suppressed that deceit from me "'when he sought my protection and favour, "'knowing that, humble as I am, "'I am an honest man seeking to do my duty in this carnal universe,' "'and setting my face against all vice and treachery. "'I weep for your depravity, sir,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'I mourn over your corruption. "'I pity your voluntary withdrawal of yourself "'from the flowery paths of purity and peace.' "'Here he struck himself upon his breast, or moral garden. "'But I cannot have a leper and a serpent for an inmate. "'Go forth,' said Mr. Pecksniff, stretching out his hand. "'Go forth, young man. "'Like all who know you, I renounce you.' With what intention Martin made a stride forward at these words, it is impossible to say. It is enough to know that Tom Pinch caught him in his arms, and that at the same moment Mr. Pecksniff stepped back so hastily that he missed his footing, tumbled over a chair, and fell in a sitting posture on the ground, where he remained without an effort to get up again, with his head in a corner, perhaps considering it the safest place. "'Let me go, Pinch,' cried Martin, shaking him away. "'Why do you hold me? "'Do you think a blow could make him a more abject creature than he is? "'Do you think that if I spat upon him I could degrade him to a lower level than his own? "'Look at him. Look at him, Pinch.' "'Mr. Pinch involuntarily did so. "'Mr. Pecksniff, sitting, as has been already mentioned, on the carpet, "'with his head in an acute angle of the wainscot, "'and all the damage and detriment of an uncomfortable journey about him,' was not exactly a model of all that is prepossessing and dignified in man, certainly. Still, he was Pecksniff. It was impossible to deprive him of that unique and paramount appeal to Tom, and he returned Tom's glance, as if he would have said, "'Aye, Mr. Pinch, look at me. Here I am. You know what the poet says about an honest man, and an honest man is one of the few great works that can be seen for nothing. Look at me.' "'I tell you,' said Martin, that as he lies there disgraced, bought, used, a cloth for dirty hands, a mat for dirty feet, a lying, fawning, servile hound, he is the very last and worst among the vermin of the world. And mark me, Pinch, the day will come, he knows it, see it written on his face while I speak, when even you will find him out, and will know him as I do, and as he knows I do. He renounce me? "'Cast your eyes on the renouncer, Pinch, and be the wiser for the recollection.' He pointed at him as he spoke with unutterable contempt, and, flinging his hat upon his head, walked from the room and from the house. He went so rapidly that he was already clear of the village when he heard Tom Pinch calling breathlessly after him in the distance. "'Well, what now?' he said, when Tom came up. "'Dear, dear,' cried Tom, "'are you going?' "'Going?' he echoed going i didn't so much mean that as were you going now at once in this bad weather on foot without your clothes with no money cried tom yes he answered sternly i am and where cried tom oh where will you go i don't know he said yes i do i'll go to america no no cried tom in a kind of agony don't go there pray don't think better of it don't be so dreadfully regardless of yourself don't go to america "'My mind is made up,' he said. "'Your friend was right. I'll go to America. God bless you, Pinch.' 
"'Take this,' cried Tom, pressing a book upon him in great agitation. "'I must make haste back, and I can't say anything I would. "'Heaven be with you. Look at the leaf I have turned down. "'Good-bye, good-bye.' "'The simple fellow wrung him by the hand, with tears stealing down his cheeks, "'and they parted hurriedly upon their separate ways.'" End of chapter 12